Hello and welcome back to Creedle. My guest today is Casey Chalk. He's been on the podcast before. He's a longtime friend and friend of the podcast, but he's joining me again today to talk about his new book. I think this is the first time, well, he's been a longtime author. He writes in a variety of publications and I'm always impressed by his ability to write so much. He's just absolutely prolific, but his latest book is The Persecuted. True stories of courageous Christians living their faith in Muslim lands. So joining me to talk about that is Casey Chalk. Casey is a freelance writer. He holds a bachelor's in history and an MA in teaching from the University of Virginia and a master's in theology from the Notre Dame Graduate School of Theology at Christendom College, also in Virginia. His writing discusses Catholicism in the public square, conservative politics, cultural analysis, and the plight of Christians around the world. Casey, his wife, and four kids live in his native northern Virginia Casey, I know you're not in Northern Virginia now. Merry Christmas, first of all, and welcome back to Creedle. Merry Christmas, Zach. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on the program again. Absolutely. Now, I know you're somewhere in the southeastern U.S. enjoying the holiday with some uh, friends. Have you had any wintry weather down there? I expect not, since it's the southeast. No, it's amazing down here. We've even got into the 70s. A little bit of rain, but otherwise, uh, Georgia is a great place to be for Christmas. I mean, as long as you don't mind not having any snow. Yeah, that's fair. We had no snow for our Christmas, but I'm looking at the looking out the window right now. Obviously, in Chicago, where I live, uh, Chicago area, where I live now, Casey, and uh, the roofs the the roofs that I'm looking at are all covered in snow. So the snow has finally arrived. Winter is here, and I can't say I'm thrilled about it. Although you know, the first snowfall of the year is always kind of nice, right? Like everything looks beautiful, and then it's really like by the third or fourth or fifth and sixteenth snowfalls that you're like, okay, this this uh, we're ready for warm weather now. So. <laughs> As someone who uh, grew up in Virginia, I don't really have any knowledge of that experience. That's fair. Do you remember, though, because uh, I was in the Northern Virginia area in 1998, I believe. No, no, no it wasn't. It wasn't. It was probably like 2004, 2007, maybe even, actually, given I'm remembering where this house was. We had a big blizzard, and it dropped like three feet of snow. 2007 time frame, does that ring a bell for you? Yeah, I I, actually, I do remember that. Not because I was there. I was. That was actually my first tour in Afghanistan, uh, happened. And, uh, when I got back a couple months later, the snow from that blizzard was still piled up at Dulles airport. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. I remember it because like I said, we were in the Northern Virginia area, but we weren't actually in Northern Virginia. We had moved my family and I to, uh, the Eastern panhandle of West Virginia. And, uh, when we were there, the snow was just falling and falling and it was, it was pretty open land. A lot of it was, was, was rural farmland. And the snow just piled up in these massive drifts and they brought out the snow trucks, but it was kind of like in your parents. So maybe, you know, that book, um, it's like Katie, Katie and the big snow. And so the snow plow trucks come out, but they get stuck cause it's so deep. So they have to call in Katie. It was exactly that because they couldn't use the snow plow trucks. They would just get stuck. So they send it, they send out like bulldozers and excavators to deal with the snow in our neighborhood. And that's how we eventually got out. We also had a really long driveway and I remember having to go out with my dad and brother like every hour just to shovel the whole thing all over again because the snow was falling so fast and so hard. And if we didn't deal with it as it happened, it would just be too heavy for us to do anything with. So we've spent like half the day just shoveling snow. And it was quite memorable in that regard as well. <laughs> it's a good workout. Yeah, it is for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to go do some shoveling as soon as I uh, finish up this conversation. So we have a fairly long driveway here and I've got to plow. But yeah, it's a good workout. So I'll look forward to it this time for that reason, at least. Um, but good. I'm, I'm really glad to have you back on the show, Casey. I'm sorry it's been so long, but uh, I was really excited to, to read your book. Uh, I know you were gracious enough to get me a review copy. The Persecuted is a really, uh, re it's a really quick read. 
but a really important one, I think, for a whole lot of reasons. You dive into some real-life stories of people who, as you said, are Christians living their faith in Muslim lands. Uh, you, you spent um, a lot of your time uh, overseas, and a lot of these stories are born from your time in Thailand when you got to know several of the very central characters here. So uh, first tell me, before we dive into some of those specific stories, first tell me, why did you, why did you write this book? What made you decide that you were going to write a book about religious persecution outside of U.S. shores? So the persecution of Christian minorities, particularly in Muslim lands, is something that has been of interest to me since I was an evangelical in high school. And I first learned that this was even a problem in different parts of the world. But having gotten to know many of these um, Christians, particularly from Pakistan while we were living in Thailand, uh, it was really inspiring. I started writing articles about them, good grief, at this point, probably about six years ago. And um, frankly, in some respects, I didn't want to write the book because it was sort of like a Jonah experience where it was like I had this strong calling that I I knew I needed to tell their stories, particularly explain um, why there is a humanitarian crisis that's happening now in Thailand regarding um, these persecuted Christians. Um, But uh, it it seemed like a painful thing to have to write an entire book uh, to tell that story. But COVID put me at home, like many people and provided me a lot more time and opportunity to, to get this thing done. So it seemed like God was sort of telling me this is the time to, to tell their story. And I'm grateful now that, uh, that I had that opportunity. Yeah, I remember talking with you while you were doing that. You were at home and didn't have, you know, you, got, you had a, a fraction of your normal workload like many of us during COVID did. And I remember you saying you were writing a book and I thought that's super cool. What a great use of COVID. Like lots of people, uh, you know, COVID time off, lots of people, you know, the joke is you learned how to bake bread, right? You you got into bread baking and you wrote a book. So pretty cool. Um, And I was also really intrigued when you said uh, that it was about this topic. You know, Um, I know that you you've written about a lot of things very widely, uh, but I was really excited to hear about your experience here. And I also, um, I think around the same time I talked to you, I'd read an article about the, um, uh, the, the people, you correct my pronunciation here, Rohingya, Rohingya people in, um, in Southeast Asia and the persecution that they encounter every day. And I, it's a very small picture of systemic persecution that happens to minorities across the world and especially in Southeast Asia. So I was really excited to dive in and, and, and learn about these people. Um, so, a lot of them you met through just your Catholic parish in Thailand. So give me a picture of sort of life in Bangkok when you were living there and what, what the daily rhythm of life was like and how you got to encounter these people that you went on to write a book about. Yeah. So when Claire and I showed up there in 2014 with our, uh, we just had one kid at the time, a one-year-old, I had no idea that there was uh, a large uh, Pakistani Christian, uh, both evangelical and Catholic population in the city or that there was this broader humanitarian crisis that was happening uh, in Bangkok and other parts of Thailand. Um, but like you said, Zach, the, the initial impetus was for this was just encountering many of these people at our local Catholic parish uh, when we went for Mass on Sundays or, or, or during the week. Um, the reason why there is a humanitarian crisis, not just of Christians, but of asylum seekers and refugees from around the world, has to do with the fact that Thailand, uh, their economy is so reliant on tourism. So they make it really easy for people to get into the country. You can basically show up from just about anywhere in the world, um, even places that you know, you know American um, 
you know, border authorities would say, ah, when you're getting, you have to do a lot more paperwork before you can cross the border here. Like Syria or Yemen or something like that. Yeah, sure. North, North Korea. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, yeah, there's North Koreans walk around in Bangkok. Wow. Um, but, uh, so they make it really easy. You just show up at Suwarnabhum International Airport in Bangkok and you can get a 30 day tourist visa. Wow. So human traffickers know about this. And a lot of these uh, persecuted Christians in places like Pakistan, uh, Palestine, Syria, Iraq, Libya, you name it, they know about this. Um, and they go to Bangkok. Uh, and the other big part of the equation is that there is a large UN office there, High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, where they can apply for formal refugee status. And why you want that special refugee status is because once you've got it, you can be replaced in a third country. Now, the, the list of countries that accept refugees is pretty short. The United States, Canada, the Netherlands, UK, but not a lot of countries outside the West. Um, and that that's, that's part of the other problem, which is that even if an asylum seeker can get designated as a refugee, which is really only a very small percentage of people that apply, um, the, the, the wait in order to be placed in another country can be years, sometimes a decade or even more. So just because someone gets refugee status is not really the silver bullet um, to, to end their problem, their economic problems, uh, their political problems. Yeah, I remember seeing some of those statistics. I'm trying to find it in your book. I know it's somewhere in the first few pages. And when you talk about learning that one of your new friends in Thailand was applying for this refugee status, and you thought that all sounded good until you did some digging and found out that something like less than 1% of total applications are actually approved every year. So the odds are really low. Um, but all the same, it's it's obviously an attractive option, even if it is seen as sort of a, a Hail Mary last ditch pass, because life in Amsterdam or you know Quebec or Montreal or New York is obviously way better than a life in your country of your birth when someone is trying to you know hunt you down and kill you or persecute you. Um, every day. So uh, it was pretty sobering to realize that though. And I think one of the things that you, you talked about in your book that made me um, reflect a little bit is just how often we in the the developed world here are aloof. Uh, we remain aloof uh, and are, are, are unconcerned by the rest of the world's problems. And it's easy to have it happen when those problems are not, not right in front of us. So you even talk about how you were concerned. You know, you you were, when you were in Thailand, you met with these people very regularly. You often provided them with material support and counseling support, and we were able to give them advice on what to do and how to navigate the bureaucracy, visit them in the immigrant detention center, for example. And then you returned home and the business of life sort of catches up with you and it's hard to keep all these things um, front and center. So I was thinking about that uh, a bit more as we went along. And I think one of the valuable things about your book is that it brings these things to the forefront again and it does so in very vivid ways uh there are there are two stories in particular throughout your book where you you sort of you tell the story of these um these two friends of yours michael de Sousa and was it wilson wilson williams yeah no s at the end just william yeah wilson william yeah wilson william and michael de Sousa. um so maybe you can just take the example of one of those casey and uh, don't don't give it all away so people can still see all the details in your book. But just maybe maybe Michael's case is a really good one. I think uh, very illustrative of some some of the challenges and the back and forth and the persecution he faces. But maybe just walk us through some of the salient points in his life so we can get a picture of what people like Michael deal with on a regular basis. So Michael D'Souza is a pretty remarkable individual. 
Although he comes from a fairly humble background, although a little bit unusual in comparison to a lot of other Pakistani Christians, his uh, father um, is actually um, was was Portuguese, uh, whereas his mother was um, uh, Pakistani. And Michael's wife, Rosemary, uh, her father was a German sailor. So um, actually, so their kids are actually they're they're only half Pakistani. They're also wow. they're half European. Um, so that, that makes them a little bit different from a lot of other uh, Pakistani Christians. But uh, Michael worked various jobs in Karachi, which is the biggest city in Pakistan. We're talking twice the size of New York City. So really, Amazing, yeah. really huge. Uh, he worked as a courier for the American Express. He worked at a local Christian school there. Um, but things uh, started to get um, a little bit dicey for him when uh, after his father died. So a number of um, militant Muslims showed up at the funeral uh, under the auspices of wanting to express their condolences to Michael for the loss of his father. Um, I should also mention these um, these Muslim militants, they're not originally from Karachi, most of them. They're actually ethnic Pashtuns that are from the western mountain, uh, mountainous regions of Pakistan and have filtered down into these big Pakistani cities, um, sometimes because of uh, political and military pressure. Um, a, lo a lot of them are basically, you know, they're waging a, a form of civil war against the Pakistani government. So they flee. Um, and there are, a lot of them during the last 20 years were actually, were Afghans who had come over the border um, into Pakistan because they were also fleeing uh, NATO military operations. Um, and so they, they, they subscribe to the more uh, extreme form of Islam called the Diobandi school, uh, which is very prevalent um, in uh, ethnic Pashtun communities in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So these guys showed up at the funeral um, and very quickly changed the conversation to be not about uh, Michael, uh, the death of uh, Michael's father, but about Mike, the need for Michael and his family to convert to Islam. When Michael uh, refused... Um, they threatened him. They, they threatened uh, to physically harm him. They threatened to take uh, his wife and uh, older, his oldest daughter and marry them off to Muslim men. Uh, Michael, of course, was terrified, but uh, I, I suppose perhaps trusted in the Pakistani uh, judicial system to protect him. Um, unfortunately, the Pakistani police, uh, in many respects, are just as frightened of these militants as, uh, as the civilians are. So uh, the harassment started to increase against Michael. He was uh, attacked uh, while he was working uh, on his way to church. A number of times he was physically assaulted. Uh, Rosemary, his wife, her sister, so Michael's uh, sister-in-law, actually was abducted by Muslim militants and forcibly married off to a Muslim mullah. Uh, so after a number of years of this, Michael started to really fear that he was going to be killed and that uh, his family was going to be um, you know, put, uh, put in a terrible position. So they spent most of their life savings to move to Bangkok for the reasons that I already described. Um, but the problem with uh, that 30-day visa is that once it expires, the Thai authorities are going to start coming after you. Um, and Because uh, they view it also as a money-making operation. What they do is they oh, take sure, people yeah. who've overstayed their visa and they throw them into what you described, Zach, the Internet, uh, Immigration Detention Center, IDC. And, um, and a lot of these people will spend whatever money they have to, to get out. At the time that we were there, it cost about $1,500 per person to get someone out of the IDC. Um, so if the immigrants themselves can afford it, they'll, they can pay. Or many of them, like Michael, have made friends at local uh, churches that have a lot of Westerners. So th thankfully, Michael had you know, made friends with us and some other people at the parish who were able to pay uh, to get him and his wife. And, and by the time they were in the IDC the second time in Bangkok, they were there twice, uh, he had three children. 
Um, so uh, things in the IDC the second time, uh, the conditions were pretty bad. Uh, it's very unsanitary. Uh, some of the immigrants who have been kept there for months have died. Uh, and the Thai authorities are shaking them up for money. And uh, there's other um, even even more immoral things going on there, um, you know, sexual abuse and whatnot. So uh, once Michael and Rosemary started to tell uh, my wife and I, when we would come to visit them pretty regularly, about uh, his eldest daughter having attracted the attention of a, um, a Thai um, detention officer. Uh, basically, he was you know, giving her little treats and uh, taking her away from the family to go other, other parts of the, of the prison. We were concerned that this looked like you know, pretty characteristic sexual grooming. Um, and, uh, and we, you know, we shared that with Michael and Michael understood and uh, his family was also in pretty poor health by that time. So after about 10 months in the IDC, uh, they agreed to have us pay to send them back to Karachi, Pakistan, because at that point it really was their only option. Um, once they were there, can I just interject here real quick, Casey? Um, yeah, this part of the book was really horrifying. Um, I'm looking if, if anyone has the book and wants to follow along, I'm looking on pages 72 and 73, um, where one woman who's 33 years old is describing the conditions. And she says the room that we were in was only for 20 people, but we had 80 to 100 in there. We slept foot to head with the others during that time in the IDC. We didn't have a toilet door. It was just open. If you take showers, people can see your whole body. Also in the jail, it was just for women, but the guards were all men. They'd come at improper times. The policemen would come at night. They would come to the IDC and hug closely the women who were dressed in barely any clothes. The police were also close with some of the prisoner women there. They'd come to talk with the other prisoner women and make relationships with them like husband and wife. If you put water into the toilet, everything would just overflow and come out again. I couldn't go to the toilet because the smell was so bad. So I didn't eat anything because if I ate them, I'd have to go to the toilet. It was an evil place. Just full of uh, full of conditions like that and obviously sexual assault happening as she describes, um, no privacy. You're all packed in like sardines, uh, elsewhere in the book, you mentioned another person who's there talking about the food being horrible and unsanitary. There's disease, there's scabies, all the little, the mites that burrow under your skin and give you itching. Um, it sounds absolutely horrible. The remarkable thing to me though, is that Michael and his family lasted so long in there because to them, the alternative going back to Pakistan was even worse and only finally, after several months of that, almost a year of that, uh, and you also mentioned his son having some medical issues that basically forced him to be remanded into the custody of someone else who was outside of the IDC to take care of him. Michael said, enough, we have to, we have to take our chances in Pakistan because we can't live like this any longer. But that's how bad Pakistan was that he put up with that in, in the IDC for almost a year, including family separation with his son. So really remarkable. Right. So once they were back in Karachi, we paid to uh, get Michael a motorized rickshaw, which is a very popular way for people to get taxi cabs in big cities like Karachi. And so Michael did that for a number of months. And um, I don't know if it was necessarily really profitable, but it was enough to pay for a, a lot of their daily expenses. But one day, some of the same militants who had previously physically assaulted him many years before, they identified him. They recognized him. They hailed him as if they wanted a ride when he pulled over. They uh, pulled him out of the cab and beat him almost to death and then burned his rickshaw. And that happened on uh, St. Patrick's Day of uh, 2018. Um, so actually, ironically enough, I heard about it while I was shoveling snow. Um, so... Michael, I saw the videos. Rosemary's wife sent me the videos and the pictures of him in the hospital and uh, how badly he had been beaten. I mean, it looked like something out of the passion, uh, his back, in terms of the, the, the marks. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was really horrifying. 
So um, we were able to raise enough money to get him medical treatment. But after that, Michael was not really willing to do anything out in public, justifiably. Um, so ever since then, they have been living under self-imposed house arrest um, in a suburb of Karachi. And uh, I mean, COVID in a sense has been a um, uh, sort of a strange blessing just in the fact that everybody's wearing masks now outside. So at least he can go out and you know buy groceries and get other necessities without attracting a lot of attention. Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, if there was an update on his case, because as you mentioned in the book, you and many others spent tons of time, especially Claire, your wife, tons of time helping them navigate the bureaucratic intricacies of the refugee application. You work with multiple congressmen um, on our side of things here in the U.S. to try to get his case uh, maybe you know brought to the UNHCR again for approval of refugee status, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as the time of the publishing of the book, and it sounds like based on what you said, still now there's there's just no update, still still waiting on those things to resolve, if at all. Yeah, that's more or less the case, Zach. So there are some other harrowing experiences that I won't go into a lot of detail. Just you know, like like you said, I would love to pe- for people to get the book and read about them. But there was an attempt to try to get into Europe through Russia um, that did not work out, and there's a lot of really crazy details there as well. Um, but as of right now, you know, Michael and his wife, they still hold out hope that um, there will be an international sponsorship from someone maybe in the United States or Canada or the Netherlands that will be able to help them to get out. We remain hopeful, too, that um, this book will draw attention to his case and the cases of other people that uh, are described in the persecuted, um, that we might be able to bring some assistance to them. The Congressman in particular uh, that you're um, hinting at, Zach, is uh, Representative Chris Smith. It's it's always give, good to give a shout out to politicians when they actually are doing wonderful work. And uh, Representative Smith is a fantastic example of that. Um, he, he really, you know, came to bat. Came, he, he, uh, he's gone to bat for persecuted Christians um, in Pakistan and around the world, mentioning them in a lot of congressional subcommittee hearings, uh, including some where my uh, my literature has been has been read and, and, and discussed. Um, so, uh, hopefully we will get some more traction with, uh, with the persecuted and uh, the awareness that it brings. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, the good representative there. It was especially, um, amazing to me to realize he's not your, he's not your elected representative. You don't live in his district and he's still going out of his way to try to help this because it's the right thing to do. So yeah, good on the Congressman for doing that. Um, Let's pivot a little bit now, Casey, to some of the things you talk about in the final pages of your book. And that's just what does this mean for us now? You know, how, how do we react? We, we are Catholic Christians living on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, we often think that, man, we're really persecuted here because uh, I lost my job because I didn't get vaccinated. Uh, you know, that without without taking away the injustice of that, which it certainly is an injustice, we can we, we should recognize that there is a difference between that and you know, being chased down by a mola and uh, beaten for believing in Jesus Christ. So we often make our problems on this side of things um, in our minds to be uh, maybe maybe as great or greater than what people elsewhere around the world like Michael experienced, but we shouldn't. We should remember that the plight of those Christians is is worse than our own, and we should we should pray for them. We should materially support them when we can. Um, so what does this mean for us, Casey? And as a sort of uh, addendum to that question. I will also say you mentioned this ill-fated trip to try to get to Poland through Russia that Michael and his family went on. It did not work out. I'll save all the details uh, for for my listeners when they get the book to read it for themselves. But I will say that what funded that ill-fated trip was a pile of money that was raised in a GoFundMe 
by uh, by you, Casey, and several other well-intentioned people on this side of things. And so, you know, it wasn't because it wasn't because you were an untrustworthy person. You and Claire running the GoFundMe, Casey. Uh, you you guys were good for sending the GoFundMe to exactly where it needed to be, which is which was into the hands of Michael. Uh, but from there, the money ended up being wasted because, uh, you know, of a basically a human trafficker who took advantage of Michael and his family. So there are very real questions, too, about, you know, how do we make sure the money that we are contributing goes to where it will be best needed and not into the hands, you know, not not to line the pockets of a human trafficker. Right. So that's maybe maybe a very concrete, um, specific question. But I think it's an important one, because if we want to help materially, in addition to our prayer, uh, we need to know the best ways to do that. So there's certainly a lot of great organizations that advocate for um, asylum Christian minority communities in, in Muslim countries um, or provide you know, all kinds of different assistance, whether it's food, um, farming utensils, education, all kinds of stuff. So I'll, I'll just name a few. Uh, the Jubilee Campaign uh, is the organization that advocated on behalf of Michael uh, at the Congressional Subcommittee. They're based in Northern Virginia. Um, so it's you know some lawyers. Um, and some other uh, human rights uh, advocates. So they do fantastic work and, and giving money to them will go a long way towards raising the profile of this story. Um, organizations that provide the more humanitarian part of, uh, of the assistance would be uh, places like the USCCB has uh, an arm that, that gives money to persecuted Christians, as does the Knights of Columbus. So if you go on their website, you'll be able to find um, the, the, the requisite links there. One in particular that I like is the, uh, the Barnabas Fund. The Barnabas Fund is not Catholic, um, and it's, it's based out of England. But what I really like about them, and I've been, a, I've known about them for a long time, going back to my Protestant seminary days, because uh, the founder was one of my professors, uh, Patrick Sugdeo, is that they tell all these stories about um, persecuted Christians in Muslim countries and the particular things that they need, right? Whether it's, you know, here's this guy living in Azerbaijan, and he needs a new tractor, and the Barnabas Fund was able to raise, you know, the, the whatever hundreds or thousands of dollars that were necessary in order to buy him uh, farming equipment. Um, so you're getting to hear exactly where your money is going. Apart from that, I actually would like to challenge, I, I, I challenge readers in the book, and I, I would challenge listeners uh, today that uh, one of the ways that you can be sure that your money is going to good use is actually to befriend people who are in similar situations, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere, right? Like in every community in this country, not necessarily people who are experiencing religious persecution in your own community in the United States, but they're people who are in desperate need of help, uh, perhaps because they've come from one of those countries uh, or they're just impoverished. Um, that's harder because it means that you actually have to befriend those people. You have to enter into those lives. Um, I talk about this a lot in The Persecuted, how it was a constant struggle for me as a middle-class American living in a big city like Bangkok and really developing friendships with these people, not viewing it just as a one-sided relationship where I give money, um, my conscience is salved, I go on with my life, but actually developing a friendship that continues over months and years um, where I develop enough trust where I'm willing to give more of my money and time to them because I know that they're good people and uh, they're deserving of my energy. Um, but also I, I'm blessed in turn by, by their, by their friendship. And that was certainly the case for both for Michael's family, Wilson's family, and other people that we met in Bangkok, where the more that we gave to them, the more that we realized that we were receiving more in turn from them. And sometimes even very practically, they were able to help us in ways that we didn't expect. They oftentimes understood the, um, the international dimensions of 
what was going on at the local parish than we did. And we're able to help connect us uh, to develop new friendships or, you know, my wife had celiac disease and that was often an issue with receiving the Eucharist. Um, and they were able to help navigate that with the Thai priests frequently. Um, so I would encourage people to look for people in, um, you know, in marginalized communities or, or from those backgrounds uh, in their own neighborhoods, in their own cities, uh, and look for ways to plug in and help. Great suggestions, Casey. Thank you for those. Um, I will I will add just as a, a note uh, about how much I admire what you did there. Uh, what came through in the book and what you just said uh, was um, it was very obvious that you had tried to enter into these people's lives and make genuine friendships with them. And I really admire you and Claire for for doing that. It, it's a wonderful thing to do, and it springs not just from some sort of sense of misplaced charity, uh, but rather a recognition that a true friendship is two ways, right? That you're, you're learning from things from them. You're gaining things from them. And sure, maybe you're not getting material things from them, but material things are not the most important things, right? Uh, I'm sure you're, you're even more grateful for, for their prayers than you would be for their material support. Um, what came through in the book to me is how holy some of these people are, that their, that their sufferings and their persecutions really make them holy. There's, there's one point in which, uh, after Michael goes back to Pakistan that he, um, you say that he wrote a Facebook post that said, uh, if anyone, if anyone is not, does not have the cross is not suffering, then he's not preaching Christ. There is, um, wait, let me see. Let me see if I can, I have the quote here. I think if anybody is preaching without the cross, he is not preaching the gospel of Christ. There is victory in the cross. I mean, that's beautiful and that's real. Uh, and the fact that you, you made friendships with these people and let their lives impact yours is a wonderful thing. Um, and I think that we definitely should take take inspiration from that example and try to do the same thing wherever, wherever it takes us. Um, Casey, we're about out of time, but this book, the persecuted true stories of courageous Christians living their life, living their faith in Muslim lands, where can people get this? Uh, And let's, let's do some non Amazon places. I mean, Amazon is the obvious one, but on this show we hate Amazon. So where, uh, where else can people buy the persecuted? So it's published by Sophia Institute press, which is a great Catholic publisher based out of uh, New Hampshire. So folks can go to sophiainstitute.com slash persecuted, or I think maybe the persecuted, one, one or the other, um, and get the book there. And so that, though you'll be sending money directly to a fantastic Catholic publisher that does a lot of great work, um, publishes a, quite a few books that are, are on relevant contemporary topics like this one, but also just a lot of fantastic spiritual literature. There's a great uh, reflection um, on uh, uh, St. Teresa Lisieux that Sophia Institute published a number of years ago. So yeah, give buying from them uh, will support a lot of fantastic uh, Catholic literature. Um, so that would be uh, that would be my number one recommendation. Okay, great. Sounds good. Buying directly from publishers, always good. Casey, it was great to have you on again. Uh, where else can folks follow your work? Sure. So my website is caseychalk.com and that um, has links both to the book and uh, to all the different publications where, uh, where I write. The main ones being right now, um, the American Conservative, the Federalist, uh, New Oxford Review, Crisis Magazine, and um, uh, more recently, The Spectator, which uh, I didn't realize this, but apparently it is the oldest continuous English language magazine in uh, in the world. Started in 1828. Wow. Yeah. Who would have thought? I had no idea either. Yeah. Well, there you go. Writing for the oldest continuous print English magazine. Wow. That's neat. 
Uh, well, Casey, thanks so much for coming on. Always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for writing this very important book. I encourage my listeners to get a copy. I'm going to link uh, the Sophia Institute Press uh, page for this book and Casey's website in the show notes. So if you want to follow along more there and buy the book, please do so. If you have any feedback for me or for Casey, send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at credopodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.